In a sense, we're coming full circle with this sermon. As I'm returning to my parents' church, All Saints Necton, for the 20th of February 2022, it was a real delight to return to the place where people had nurtured me, encouraged me, and sent me off to study theology so long ago. And it's actually been my first chance to return and preach at a service with them since my ordination. And so the beginning of this recording is a little bit chaotic, as there's a couple of sort of back and forth moments with my parents. And briefly to explain that, Dad kept on telling people that his son was going to be coming and preaching, and Mum kept complaining, saying, He's my son too. Anyways, the reading is Luke chapter 8, 22 to 25, that moment when Jesus calms the storm. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. It is so wonderful to be able to look out and see so many familiar faces, but also a few unfamiliar ones, and I hope that if I haven't yet spoken to you, afterwards we'll have a chance to meet and get to know one another. But it's so nice to be back with both of my parents, <laughs> of whom I am both of their son. And it is also lovely to be able to introduce to so many of you my wonderful wife, Linnea, who I believe actually, is it next week, is coming and doing the women's breakfast? Uh, on Zoom. On Zoom. So, on the women's breakfast on Zoom, you will have an opportunity to hear from Linnea and find out more about her at that point. It's been quite nostalgic as I've prepared to come back to stand in this very pulpit because I remembered my first sermon here, and I've looked it up, and to my surprise, my first sermon standing here in this pulpit was in September 2012, coming up on 10 years ago. Both seems like forever ago and just last week. A lot has happened in that time. I graduated from the London School of Theology, I then worked there doing pastoral support work with students, and most significantly met Linnea, the beautiful Swedish exchange student who would go on to become my wife. Around that same time, I was accepted to train for ordination, going to study at Cranmer Hall, part of St John's College in Durham, before being ordained deacon at Norwich Cathedral on the 30th of June 2018. That was a tremendous day for me, it really was. But part of what made it so special was that so many of you came to support me on that day. There are pictures of a whole busload of you all travelling together to the cathedral. And there was a celebration here in the parish room afterwards as well. 
And it's always meant a lot to me to know ever since I arrived here as a 13-year-old child of your new vicar, not so new now, <laughs> that you have supported me and believed in me as you've sent me off to follow God's calling to ministry. So if I say nothing else that you listen to before you fall asleep in my sermon this morning, please hear me say a big thank you to each and every one of you who have supported me both through your time, your prayers and your finances. A lot has happened, but some things have stayed the same. My hair remains as long as ever, though tied up more neatly today. While other things have changed, such as heading off first to London and then Durham and then this, where we are now, a team of 11 churches somehow muddling our way through recent times. Even there, things are changing for Lillio and I, as we come towards the end of our time there and seek the next chapter together, a chapter which in all likelihood will be further away from Necton than we are now. In a sense, this is a real shame because we won't get to see each other as often as we do. But in another sense, it's the natural way of things. Indeed, it was the experience of Jesus in the verses of Scripture immediately prior to our Gospel reading this morning. Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him while he was teaching, and they wanted to spend time with him. Yet when he was told that they were at the door, he responded, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now some have thought this quite a rude statement from Jesus. But we know that later, even on the cross, his love from Mary was such that he made sure she would be looked after by John the disciple. No, Jesus wasn't being rude as such, rather acknowledging that his purpose, his singular focus, was on his ministry. And this phrase, those who hear the word of God and do it, in verse 21, serves as a clever turning point in Luke's account of Jesus' ministry. Luke, as we know, composed his gospel having carefully investigated everything he could about Jesus by speaking with as many eyewitnesses as possible. He then made a real effort to present everything in an orderly fashion, so that first Theophilus, and in time we ourselves, might come to know the truth concerning Jesus. When we pay close attention to the way that Luke presents things, we realise the significance of today's Gospel reading for Luke. It comes not just from the drama of the scene with the disciples on the stormy sea, but from what came before it and what follows along after it. A couple of weeks ago, in Luke chapter 5, the disciples meet Jesus. They leave their jobs and they start to follow him. In chapters 6, 7 and 8, Jesus spends his time teaching. Last week, we heard Luke's vision of the Beatitudes, which is followed by the parable of the man who built his house upon the rock. Then Jesus forgives the sinful woman who washed his feet with oil and dried them with her hair. He heals some people. He tells the parable of the sower. And the underlying current through each of these scenes and others that I haven't highlighted is that of teaching 
about the kingdom of God. By word and deed, Jesus is making known the word of God, and the disciples have followed along, listening to everything and asking questions. In chapter 8, though, Jesus moves from speaking the word of God to doing the things of God. Suddenly, Luke presents us with Jesus calming the storm, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, and feeding the 5,000. Something significant is underway. So hold on to your seats, because before we dive in, I've got a question for you. Put your hands up if you have ever been afraid. All of us. Okay, now keep your hands up if you've ever had a moment where you've been afraid you might be really hurt. Maybe you were nearly in a car crash, or perhaps you were worried about a tree coming down just the other day. It's a common experience. Okay, keep your hand up if you've ever been afraid for someone you love, whether a child or a parent or a spouse or a friend. Perhaps their health is in jeopardy. Perhaps their finances are in a mess or their relationships are breaking down. If you've ever felt afraid for someone else, you have your hand up. Thank you, you can put your hands down. I wonder how many of us over the last couple of years have been afraid of COVID. Have you also had that feeling of taking a lateral flow test? And you felt fine before you took it, but in the 15, 30 minutes before the result comes, you suddenly have a sore throat and you're a little bit anxious that perhaps it might detect that you had something you didn't know you had and it's going to ruin your plans for the day. I know that I've had that feeling, it might be clear. <laughs> Again, pretty much all of us have been afraid. I have one last question. Have you ever been afraid that you might have messed up something that was really important to you? It might have been an exam or a tricky conversation. Maybe you wanted to impress guests with a tasty cake, but it doesn't look like it's rising properly in the oven. It doesn't matter whether it was a moment of national security or a small detail around the house. If this has happened to you, put your hand up. Look around. We've all got our hands up. And the reason why I'm asking you to put your hands up, you can put them down, is because it confirms what I think we each know in our heads, but not always in our hearts. That fear is something which we all experience. And more importantly, we can be afraid of a number of different things, even if the things which make us afraid are different than the things that make someone else afraid. More importantly, we recognize that fear is a very common response that people can have to the world around them. More than this, it's a very human response. And our gospel scene presents us with this fear. The disciples find themselves tossed about by the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee, a place which is several hundred feet below sea level, with several ravines running into it, through which wind tunnels often form, generating choppy waters. And the water was not just a bit choppy, but was coming in over the sides of the boat. I don't know about you, but I would be afraid. 
And what's truly telling about the severity of this situation is that a good number of the disciples were fishermen, experienced boatmen, and experienced with the seas of Galilee. And despite their experience, and despite the brevity of this scene in Luke, it's safe to surmise that the situation was pretty severe. Yet in the midst of their panic, Jesus lies there asleep. Again, another profoundly human experience. Fatigue after working and the need for rest. Another sign that Jesus is truly human in the same ways in which we are human. Indeed, his ability to sleep through even a storm is not actually as surprising as some people might think. It's not uncommon to hear of some people managing to sleep through all kinds of surprising situations, whether that be fire alarms, earthquakes, or even small car crashes. Jonathan has slept through at least two of those. (laughs) Regardless, Jesus' peaceful sleep in the midst of the storm is a stark contrast to the fear of the disciples who wake him up with shouts of, Master, Master, we are perishing! Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind and waging waves. They seized him, there was a calm. Luke is so matter-of-fact about this, but it conveys a sense of, well, of course the waves calm down when Jesus tells them to. Yet this remains a stunning moment. It's both a dramatic reversal of chaos into order, and it has staggering implications. Despite their newfound safety, we hear that the disciples remain afraid and amazed. They ask the question which will drive the whole of the next wave of miracles in Luke's Gospel. Who is this that he commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him? We could and should ask this again and again. Who then is this? But he commands the demons to leave, and they obey him. Who then is this? But he commands the dead to rise, and they obey him. Who then is this? But he blesses a handful of bread and fishes, and they can feed thousands. Who then is this Jesus? It's a question we each must ask and answer. In the Greek story of the Odyssey, the storms waylay Odysseus as a powerful sign of the wills of the gods, dictating and shaping human fate. Many cultures around the world, particularly those who sail, develop similar ideas about gods being behind the winds and the storms at sea, with the success or difficulty of a voyage being indicative of your place in the eyes of the gods. Indeed, you might be familiar with the story of King Canute, who, being flattered excessively by his courtiers, set his throne upon the shore and commanded the incoming tide to halt and not wet my feet or my robes. Yet, continuing to rise as usual, the tide dashed over his feet and legs without respect to his royal person. Then King Canute leapt backwards, saying, Let all men know 
how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. This is the truth of it. By the wind and raging waves obeying Jesus, we can come to no other conclusion than that he is exercising divine power and authority. But this man who needs sleep as any of us do, is somehow able not just to speak about God, but to speak with the voice of God, and to do the things of God. It is in this moment that the disciples' eyes start to be opened to the revelation of God in Jesus in a way which will go on to change the world. The next few events in Luke's Gospel will broaden this understanding. Jesus has God's authority over demonic spirits. Jesus has God's authority over life and death over healing and ritual cleanliness. And he shall feed the five thousand just as God fed the Israelites when they wandered in the desert. And all of this culminates in the answer to the question, Who then is this? It's a question which in Luke chapter 9 verse 20, Jesus himself asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter replies, the Messiah of God. And it's only following this realization that we come to the theme of next Sunday with the glory of the transfiguration. Do you now see why this stormy scene is so pivotal for Luke? He has ordered his account in such a way that having been presented with Jesus' teachings, we are then compelled to ask ourselves, who then is this Jesus? And having been confronted with scene after scene, where the answer is none other than he is the revelation of God amongst us, Luke's Gospel will refocus on one singular purpose, the cross upon which the Son of Man will undergo great suffering and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is because the revelation of God is not about flaunting his divinity amongst humanity. Jesus was not a showman on the road, earning a living by doing the spectacular. But in all that he did, he was showing us the beating heart of the love of God for his people, for those whom John describes as the children of God. It is one thing to become convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. It's another to realize that God became human in order that we might know him. More than this, that he might save us from our sins, from our fears, from our frailties, and even from the death which we each shall die. The God who calms the storm of Galilee with a single word doesn't just simply tell us that he loves us. Instead, he speaks far more forcefully by dying for us and as us. More than this, having died our death and taken the punishment we deserve for our sins upon himself, on the third day Jesus was raised by the love of God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he lives, truly lives, even now. For as long as he lives, 
he offers us the promise of his love unending, the hope of forgiveness, healing and eternal life. In a very real sense, the salvation found in Jesus is not something which is declared by divine command, like the calming of the storm, but it is now grounded in the internal reality of God, such that God has decided that what it means for God to be God is to be the God who loves us. This should amaze us, as it amazed the disciples when they asked, Who is this? And we should listen for the question that Jesus asked us and decide for ourselves how we will answer him. Where is your faith? Amen.